Yeah, if you're a Peter Gabriel fan, you know that song, Here Comes the Flood. It's a fascinating song. I thought it would be worth us playing it together as we reflect on the story of Noah. If you've seen the trailer for the movie, it comes out next month. I think the very account of Noah and certainly putting it on the big screen brings a lot of questions up. You know, was there really a worldwide flood? Was it really fair of God to, uh, to, to destroy the world? Did God really give people a chance? Is this evidence that maybe the Bible is uh, an allegory of, of the idea that floods come in our life that we can overcome, or did it really happen? Well, I think these are great questions, and so we're going to explore some of those questions today as we finish up Joy's story, because Jesus relates the future of his coming to this historic fact of what happened in the past of the flood. So we're going to try and relate the two. And if you do end up watching the movie, you might want to pick up the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, because you'll find that the movie is very much out of alignment with what the Bible says. It's sort of been holly-weirded uh, in some different ways. So let me tell you what the Bible describes. The Bible describes uh, a man named Noah, and he was a preacher of righteousness. So for 120 years, he built an ark. So immediately we go, how did people live that long? There's at least three theories. I won't go into all those today, but one's genetics. There was a long-life gene. And when the gene pool got reduced at the ark, uh, a lot of those long-life genes uh, weren't in place. There's evidence outside the biblical record of people who lived hundreds of years. And we won't tie into all that today. But the point is, he, he, he built this ark for 120 years. So for 120 years, he's warning people, he's inviting people uh, to come and to be part of what God has uh, provided as a way of escape. So again, think of that as like half the time of our nation's existence was how much time God gave people to respond to his warnings. Another thing it says is that in, in those days, the intent of everyone's heart, everyone in the culture had got so decadent that every one of their thoughts was evil continually. Now, that's hard for us to imagine. It's almost like a, a terrorist uh, culture was in place of just pure hatred and pure evil. And so you might say, wow, well, that, I don't know if I believe that or not, but it at least helps reframe. If that's really how bad it was, you might be the kind of person living in that culture saying, God, why don't you stop the evil and stop the torture and stop the rape sooner? What, what do you wait, why did you wait 120 years for? And God gave lots of warnings. And, and ultimately, the people didn't take up his warnings. What would happen? Reminds me a little bit of a guy named uh, Harry Truman. Not the Harry Truman who was president, but a similar Harry Truman uh, as far as he was, his fame. When Mount St. Helens blew up, I don't know if you remember the story, but when Mount St. Helens blew up, a lot of geologists came to a guy living right alongside the Mount St. Helens named Harry Truman and said, Harry, it's going to blow up. You've you got to get out of here. And Harry was a grumpy old man. He's like, I'm not moving. It's not going to blow. If it's going to blow, then I'm going to go. That was sort of his big spiel. He had a bunch of cats, and he decided he didn't want to move with his cats. Well, he became like a national hero. I mean, he got wedding proposals from people because, oh, he's taking on the man. He's standing up against a geologist. You know, he, he's, he's not going to let the government move him. Well, sure enough, Mount St. Helens blew up. And he, that's where he, he resides, somewhere under the ashes of Mount St. Helens, because he refused to take the warnings that were given to him. Now, should we get mad at the geologists because, you know, they allowed Mount St. Helens to blow? No, they warned him. They went to his house. They petitioned him. They pleaded with him. Come on, come on, come on. Warn us, warn us, warn us. Come on. This is really going to happen. It's really going to happen. And then it didn't. And I think when you think about Harry Truman, you think if he knew that day, the day he said, no, it's not really going to happen. If he knew that day what would happen tomorrow, he would have prepared for joy. He would have said, listen, I want to live a long life I'll have to leave my house. There'll be some temporary changes, but I want to live a long life. I'm even going to bring some joy into my cat's life by having them have a long life as well because they didn't survive the, the Mount St. Helens blast. 
Well, this idea is what Jesus speaks to in Matthew chapter 24. So as we open uh, the joy story, Jesus says that if you knew today what you will know tomorrow, you'd prepare for joy. If you knew today for sure what would happen tomorrow, you would prepare for joy. And, and that's true in a lot of our lives, in a lot of areas. I mean, if we got in a flux capacitor, if we got Doc Brown here, and we're going to get in a time machine, we're going to move forward, you know, 1.21 gigawatts, I think, bolt of lightning, and, and we move forward in time, and I showed you a vision of your marriage 20 years from now. And it was a vision of a powerful friendship, a passionate love life, a deep spiritual soulish connection. And you saw a picture of that tomorrow. And so you can have that in your marriage if you prepare today for joy. Work on those communication issues before they get out of whack. Invest in your marriage. Have a, a monthly date night. Don't wait till empty nest when you have that crisis of, wow, I don't even know this person anymore. Your vision of tomorrow would help you prepare today for that. If I took you forward to a time when your kids are 25 or 30, and I said, you can have a deep mentoring friendship with your kids into their adulthood as a consultant, as a friend with them, as a moral equal with them. But you don't start when, you, when they're 30. You start when they're 8. You start when they're 5. You start when they're teenagers. Invest in that relationship. Be their coach. Be their mentor. Don't be just their friend, but do be their friend. Invest in them. Invest in that relationship. If I took you forward to tomorrow and I showed you that there's a heart attack coming 10 years from now, you'd say, oh my goodness, if there's a heart attack coming, I need to prepare today. I need to eat differently. I need to exercise differently. I don't want that to happen, so I want to prepare myself. Or, or think about going backwards. If you knew yesterday what you know today about the price of Apple or the price of Google, would you have done something differently? Would you have prepared for joy five years ago or 10 years ago? Well, of course you would. Well, this principle affects our relational life, our financial life, if you knew by, by, by putting some savings away that the result of that could be a preparing for your retirement, you'd say, well, yeah, 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 I'd prepare for joy now if I had a clear vision of tomorrow. So that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about this idea that, that what's going to happen in the end of time, if you knew today what you'll know tomorrow, you can prepare for joy. So he gives us three no's, three things that we can know for sure today. In fact, these three no's that he's going to describe are three things that he guarantees that you can be fully and confidently aware of today. So let's, let's turn the page and we'll look at the first one. The first one is that there is joy, there's joy in not knowing when he will return. So just like in our days, people wonder about the end of time that was happening back then. His disciples said, hey, when are you coming back? When's the end of time? When does the world come to an end? And Jesus says, but of that day and hour... No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. And Jesus says there is joy in not knowing when it will happen. Now, if you have heard people make predictions about 2012, for example, or Y2K, or maybe you've heard whole denominations, Jehovah's Witnesses made some predictions in the 50s and 60s that Christ was coming back. Harold Camping a few years ago made predictions, signs all over the United States. Jesus coming back was in May, I remember. It was my birthday. I didn't want to miss my birthday celebration when Jesus came back. And he was wrong. And back in the 80s, there was actually a book, very, very popular, called 88 Reasons Why He's Coming in 88. Wrong. The guy had enough uh, chutzpah to rewrite the book the next year and call it 89 reasons he's coming in 89, if you can believe that. So if you're skeptical about the idea of people who predict the end of the world, let me tell you, you're already in alignment with Jesus. 
if you've been naive, you don't want to be naive and you're skeptical. Jesus says no one knows the hour. So if you come across somebody who knows the hour, that's nonsense. In fact, there's joy in not knowing when. I turned 40 last year and I knew there would be a party, right? Because that's what you do when somebody turns 40. But there was a joy in not knowing when. Because every moment you, oh, you open the door, nope, this isn't it. Right? So it sort of fills your life with anticipation. It fills your life with expectation. And to be honest, I probably was on my best behavior that month. Because you hate to be fighting with your wife right before you walk into a party she threw for you. Now, hopefully I try to be on a good behavior all the time. But, but honestly, I did think about that in the month of May. Well, you know what? There might be a party any moment. I don't want to be having a fight. I sort of took things that would be a big deal and put them down a little bit. So, so this is what Jesus is describing. Is, is when you don't know when God's coming back, your life gets filled with joy and anticipation and excitement because you never know when he might return. Well, the reason... So then we did have a party. I walked in uh, to the church one Sunday night and there was a party and there were friends from out of town and there was food and it was Mexican. And it was my favorite food. So it was just awesome. It was this time of fellowship and storytelling and just it was awesome. And the Bible describes heaven not as some boring place with clouds and harps where you're like, all right, another day, another day, another day. It describes heaven as a party, a wedding feast, a, a time of joy and friendship and connection. You have a real body in heaven. So I don't know if you realize that. The Greeks taught you didn't. The Christians teach you have a real body. Heaven's a real place. You eat. Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, ate food in front of his disciples to show them the new body. It's a place of creativity. It's a place of work. It's a place of wonder. It's a place beyond your imagination, but it's real. And there's a joy in not knowing when you get to go there. Well, the second aspect of joy, as we turn the page that, that uh, Jesus describes, is that there's joy in not knowing if it's going to happen. You know, many folks will say, well, you know, if there's a God, I'm not sure who he or she is. And if there's a heaven, I don't know if I'm going to get in. I, I hope I've done enough. And if I get up to the pearly gates, I hope that my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. There's a lot of if. If this, if I hope, I wish, maybe... The Bible offers something that no other religion offers. Certainty. Confidence. You can know the truth. You can know there's a God and you can know he is with you. You can know when you get to heaven that you will get in, not based on what you do, but based on what he did. There's confidence in knowing that's a God who you don't just get to meet him in heaven someday. You can know him right now in the here and now. And there's joy in not knowing if there's a God, but knowing truly there is a God. There's a joy in not knowing if there's a heaven, but there is a heaven that you can dwell in, that you can be part of. So Jesus is describing in his story, he says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he's going to relate these two. As in the days before the flood, there were people who were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. They did not know, they did not believe, they did not buy until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So he says these folks didn't know if it was really going to happen. But I'm telling you, just as the, the flood really did occur, so too my coming really will occur. You can know it for sure. You don't know when it's going to occur, but it will happen. There's a time that you will come face to face with God You'll meet up with him. You'll give an opportunity either to have fairness where God does measure you on your good and your bad deeds. And honestly, your good deeds are not quite as good as you think they are. And your bad deeds are probably worse than you think they are. 
So you can have fairness if you want it. But there's something far better than fairness. It's forgiveness. God can offer you forgiveness on that day. That's I, I don't want fairness. I want forgiveness. He says you can have forgiveness. But, but many people don't prepare for joy. They don't prepare for the forgiveness of the future. Well, this brings up lots of questions, I think. Back to the idea of the flood. Bill Nye was in town recently, and he just had some great questions I enjoyed. He, he asked questions about the flood. He asked questions about whether or not it was really true. He said he was a reasonable man, and as a reasonable man, if he could be shown some evidence, then he would actually begin a journey toward belief. And maybe that's you. So I'd like to take a few moments and talk about the flood, because Jesus relates this so-also passage that just as there was a certainty of the flood in the past, there's a certainty of its coming in the future. So just so you know, within Christian thinking, there's two views on the flood. Some people believe that the world, the flood was a localized flood, that it destroyed the known world, meaning everyone living in that area of the world was destroyed. So when the Bible says it destroyed the world, it means everybody because they're all living together. So that's one view. I don't hold that view, but that's one that Christians hold. The other view is that there was a global flood. Well, if there's a global flood, there should be some evidence for it. So let's go ahead and turn the page. First thing, as you look at history or you look at civilizations, the Bible describes several things about the flood. Uh, man was in transgression. There was divine destruction. There's a favored family. An ark was provided. Destruction by water. Humans were saved. Animals were saved. Universal destruction. They landed on mountains. Birds were sent on. Survivors worshipped. And divine favor on the saved. Well, if that really happened, and I think it did, then the story of that should have disseminated through all the different cultures that would come out from Noah's family. And if you look at history today, you will find that the flood traditions exist all cultures throughout the world. You can find them in, in Babylon, Assyria, uh, Persia, Egypt, Italy, Russia, China, all the way to Hawaii. Now, they don't always agree on all the facts. So as the story began to spread out, certainly some of the facts uh, got lost. But look at how many of them sync up. As if all these different civilizations and all these different continents went back to a history of a similar story that they had heard. To me, that speaks to the plausibility that this really occurred. But let's look at the fossil record. If there really was a global flood, there should be some fossils to support it. So we're going to look at some fast fossils, some flying fossils, and some floating fossils. Let's go to the next slide. So first, let's look at some, some fast fossils. There are all over the world fossils that are fossilized very quickly in the middle of some action. For example, here is a, an animal giving birth. This is actually right in the middle of giving birth. This is the child coming out and it's fossilized. This didn't happen slow. This happened through rapid sedimentation where, where pressure was pushed in and rapidly in the middle of childbirth, all of a sudden this, this animal, and I have hundreds of pictures like this. Here's one. Here's a... Uh, a mummified dog, a petrified dog, he was found 20 feet up a tree, instantly petrified, climbing up. And this had to happen very, very quickly. Think about other places around the world, like BBC News did a report on jellyfish. You know, the thing about a jellyfish is, if you leave a jellyfish out, it's going to be eaten, it's going to be weathered, erosion. But you actually find petrified jellyfish. How does one get a petrified jellyfish? you again would have to have massive pressure of water pushing sediment into soft tissue to happen quickly. Next slide, I'll show you another piece of jellyfish. This is actually a jellyfish, so here's a typical jellyfish. It's from the bottom. This is another petrified jellyfish. Here in Nebraska is a picture of four oreodonts, and you can see they're in the middle of swimming. So they got themselves in swimming position, and they get petrified. Now, if you believe in a localized flood, you'd say a localized flood had to rapidly you know, smush the sediment into them. If you believe in a global flood, you're like, wow, it's amazing that 
all these things in motion can be found all over the world. Also, fossilization sometimes happens quickly. Uh, it doesn't take long periods of time. Here's a petrified bowler's hat. So again, given the right condition, you can even take something modern and petrify it rather quickly. The other thing, you think about your coffee, or you think about hot chocolate, that at the end of your, your drink, there's always that, that chunk of hot chocolate, and it's like the last sip is so good because it's got all the chunks on it, you can swish them back and forth. If there really was a global flood, then the fossils shouldn't be distributed evenly. They should actually be sloshed back and forth, and you should find sections around the world where a bunch of fossils have sloshed together. You find that all over the place. Even here in Indian Hill, you can go down, you find a huge fossil record, but you find all over the world just sections where there's piles and piles and piles and piles of rocks and fossils buried, you know, feet, feet upon feet upon feet upon feet upon each other, as if these fossils has, had pushed together and settled just like it would have in your hot chocolate or your coffee. So again, this doesn't prove it, but it makes it a little more plausible when you begin to say, wow, fast fossilization can occur. The second thing is flying fossils. If there really was a global flood, there should be fossils on the top of mountains, for example. So this is Mount St. Helen, I'm sorry, Mount Everest. So it's 29,028 feet. And at the top of that mountain, you know what we find? Clams. In fact, there's a giant one, a giant petrified one. Here's a guy laying on top of one that's found at 29,028 feet. I watched a lecture this week about uh, platonic movements and uh, some theories. They've studied the ocean floor, and they've found that the, the ocean dirt, the lava and such that's come out of the middle section, is actually some of the newest dirt. It's, it's some of the youngest, which shows that this happened very, very recently. And the idea that this lava would have come out and it would have pushed with massive shifts at tectonic plates, and that would have then pushed up against the continents, and because of the pressure coming against it, it would have formed many of the mountain ranges we have today. So those mountains, it didn't mean the water used to be as high as Mount Everest. It meant Mount Everest used to be lower. It was underwater. And then this swishing and this pressure of the tectonic movements and the water pressure would have pushed these mountaintops up. So again, does this prove it? No, but it's interesting that what the Bible predicts we find, which is animal life, oysters, clams, on the top of even one of our highest mountains, 450 feet from the beach. The Bible also describes, as you saw in the movie, giant floods of the deep were opened. So the rain didn't just come down, water came up as well. Now think about that. That's the first book of the Bible describing a geologic event like fountains of the deep. Well, they hadn't been to the, down to the bottom of the ocean. But the Bible accurately described fountains that were in the deep that we have since discovered geologically. Pointing again to the validity of the Bible. And if there were fountains of the deep, we should be able to go under the water and find giant fissures that opened up. And sure enough, as you look anywhere in the topography of the ocean, you see these giant fissures where sure enough, there could have been a release of pressure or water during that time. So flying fossils. Now let's look at, at floating fossils. If there was rapid sedimentation and water pushing stuff all over the place, we should find fossils all over the place. Well, we do all over the world. But more than that, we find what are called polystrata fossils. These are fossils that go through multiple layers of rock. So, for instance, here in France are a bunch of trees. You see, those trees are at multiple different angles. Some of them are upside down. So how do you get an upside-down tree in rock layers? Well, that had to be laid down very, very quickly to flip the tree upside down in a process of a flood. You see that in Yellowstone. Lots and lots of fossils within the mountainside. Here in Alabama... Um, you'll find a fossilized tree. So here's a fossilized tree right here running through multiple layers of rock. 
Here's another one in Tennessee from the ground up. You can see here's a tree got petrified very quickly and then multiple layers of rock on it. Here's one in Germany. Here's one in Canada. And again, I could go for three hours on this kind of stuff. But here's my point. Does this prove for sure there was a global flood? No. But it does say that it's very plausible. It's very true. And if you don't believe in the Bible, I want you to know there's evidence to help you move to the place where you can believe it really happened as a historic event. And if you say, well, I do believe the Bible, I'm just not sure if all this is a myth. There's evidence to help support that your faith can be grounded on facts, not grounded on fiction. So, to that point, we go back to the next slide. Jesus is saying, just as there was a global flood, so also there will be the coming of man. That just as there's evidence for this event that occurred in the past, you can use that evidence to have confidence that I will return in the future. So he moves to his third no. There's, there's joy in not knowing when. There's joy in not knowing if. But there's joy in knowing you're ready. So he says, then two men will be in a field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour the Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready. And that's his point. Be ready. Be ready. Watch, therefore. Watch, therefore. There's a joy in knowing you're ready, whether it's the flood coming or whether it's the coming of Christ. There's a joy in knowing that. I mean, think about if you were Noah and his family. You had done everything you could to try and tell people, come on, join us. It's going to be good. We've got a whole new creation. There's there's bad stuff coming. There's tragedy coming. Come on. Come on. The sadness of those who didn't step in and prepare for joy. But now you had the joy of re-inhabiting the planet, really. You had the joy of starting over. You had the joy of, of new beginnings. But you had the joy of knowing that God had warned you in advance and that you had taken his preparation to experience joy in the future. On the other hand, you say, Chad, how does a, a global destruction bring joy at all? That, that sounds so counterintuitive. That makes sense. In fact, what's interesting about the Bible is it says that you have to understand the bad news before you get the good news. And the more you understand the bad news, the more you appreciate and love the good news. What do I mean by that? In fact, the Bible's called good news. How does bad news help you understand good news? Well, imagine you come home today. As you stop by, I'm sitting on your front porch. And you think that's weird because we promised that we would not come to your door. And you said, this guy's not keeping his word. But, but you, you, you let that go. And as you step up, I say, hey, I want to let you know right before you got here, um, somebody stopped by and you had some debts you owed, but I paid them off. How would you react? Well, what debt are you talking about? You wouldn't know how to react. Immediately you'd feel your privacy was violated, but you'd say, I don't know how to react because what debt are you talking about? So you'd say, what debt are you talking about? And I'd say, well, the bad news is you forgot to put two stamps on that letter. So the post office man came back. He said, you need another stamp. I pulled out, paid 48 cents for you. Put that stamp on there. I just want to let you know I paid for it. How would your reaction be? Thanks. Right? You wouldn't be overwhelmed. You would, you'd be, oh, I appreciate it. Thanks. Now why are you here? But what if you ask me, well, okay, well, what was that debt? I said, well, sort of embarrassing, but the IRS stopped by your house. It turns out that you owe three years of back taxes on your business. 
that totaled something like $747,222. In fact, the IRS agents were kind of mad. In fact, they had two armed guards next to them. I'm not sure what that was all about. You'd say, oh, my goodness. All of a sudden, the bad news is like, oh, they found me. Oh, my goodness, the audit's begun. Oh, my goodness, this is D-Day. This is, <gasps> the bad news has gone way up, right? Oh, three years. What's my future going to hold? Oh, my goodness. And I say, the good news is I pulled out my checkbook and I wrote off your debt. In fact, here's a thank you note from the IRS. You never thought you'd get a thank you note from the IRS. And now the bad news being big, your joy, you throw your arms around me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You paid something I couldn't pay. You did something I could never do. Thank you. You would now be filled with emotion and joy and anticipation. You'd say, Chad, can I take you out to dinner? Chad, I want to get to know you. What kind of a person does that? When you understand the real message of the Bible, it's that the debt we owe God is not some 48-cent stamp. The more you understand how bad it is, your self-centeredness, your impatience, your unkindness, my unthankful attitude, my sarcastic, cutting people down, discouragement, all the ways in which I put other things in my life more important than God, the debt I owe God is in the quadrillions, gazillions, It's a number so high, I can't say it, nor can I fathom it. Now you think, well, that would produce incredible guilt and bondage and just walking around, oh my goodness, I owe so much. Until you get the good news. The good news is, God says, once you understand how bad it is, and I say, I paid it all for you. Not just what you did in the past. I paid for your past, your present, and your future. I covered all your guilt. I covered all your shame. That's the message of the Bible. That's not religion. That's not trying to do better. And, and you know, I did some good stuff, so that makes up for lusting after somebody, because lusting after somebody is worth five bucks in the offering plate. Right? I mean, the whole idea of that's silly. I mean, the, the very nature of making up for you did wrong immediately dehumanizes whatever you did wrong. But what happens is if you're in the system of of pros and cons, you can't honestly look at how bad what you do is. You can't. You're always trying to minimize it because you're basically a good person. But grace, forgiveness and God says, no, I'm not basically a good person. My debt I owe God and others, it's just, it's uncalculable. But, oh, there's something more incalculable than that. That God, through Jesus, would die for it. That he would forgive it. That he would pay it all. That he has covered my shame. That he's forgiven my guilt. And now you get filled with joy because you were ready. You were prepared. You stand before God. He says, do you want a fair trial? No, I don't want a fair trial. Great. Because if we put your bad deeds on a scale, boom. If we put your good deeds on a scale, and you say, oh, I really, and, and that day is all truth. There's no, no deception. There's no spinning. It's truth. And when God gives you an impartial trial, you're going to agree with him. Man, I was not a good person. But he'll say, do you want fairness or do you want forgiveness? I want forgiveness. And he says, oh, well, I got some good deeds to put on the good side of the trail, uh, of the scale. And he goes and grabs Jesus' good deeds. Boom. 
And now you get entrance into heaven, not based on what you've done, but based on what he's done. And that's why you prepare for joy. That's why you live your life now saying, oh, my goodness, in light of what he has done, in light of what he will do, I want to serve my life serving other people like he served me. I want to be generous to others like he was generous to me. I I can face death because the worst they can do is kill me. And guess what? When you kill me, I'm off to heaven anyway. I can suffer. I can be I can deal with unkindness. I can sacrifice for other people because I have the confidence of knowing there's a God. I have the confidence of knowing death has been destroyed. I have the confidence of knowing when I stand before God, it's not well, if I wonder if I'm I'm for sure in. That's the message of the Bible. So what's the application for us? If you knew today what you'll know tomorrow, you'd prepare for joy. You'd prepare Turn the page. That means prepare today for the certainty of tomorrow. And sure, that includes things like your health. I'm going to start preparing today so I can have joy tomorrow to put my health right. That includes your relationships. I want to invest in my marriage now. So 20 years from now, I have a marriage that 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 has not been neglected and full of weeds. I'm going to start investing right now, whatever age my kids are, even if they are in their 20s or 30s. I want to make sure that by the time they're in their 50s, we have a good relationship. Financially, I haven't really done well. I've been overspending. I haven't really invested in such a way to prepare for the future. Prepare now in light of what will happen tomorrow. But even more so eternally. If this life is a, a blip compared to eternity, wouldn't you want to take this little bit of time and prepare now so you could experience joy and wonder and creativity for eternity? You can do that by reserving a ticket. Jesus says that whatever you've done wrong, he can give you a clean slate. He offers it to everyone. And like Noah did, he warned everyone. Hey, don't think you're better than you really are. Don't think that you can be your own ticket. Allow me to be your ticket. And you can have that ticket of clean slate or you can say, well, I don't need that. That's sort of for weak people. I've got my own good works. And we say, God, look at those good works I have. And you don't think that's enough? You say, well, I did also help that old lady cross the street. And let's not forget that. And we also did this. And you can just say, I don't need God's plan. I don't need what he has because I've got my own stuff. And the Bible says that your righteousness, not your bad stuff, your good stuff is like filthy rags. It's like dirt. It's like refuge. It's like trash. It doesn't get you in. But if you ask and believe Christ to be your forgiven leader, he becomes your ticket. And when he becomes your ticket... You have full entrance, not based on what you do, but based on what he did. And this is the way you live your life. Now, cool little origami. This is all those years of study hall that I had, and I learned how to do origami. <laughs> this is the way to get to heaven. So I'll show you this last clip from the Bible series, because at the end of their lives, history records that all the disciples had such a confidence in the clean slate that they had from God, from Christ, that they faced death destruction they, they they faced torture and none of them compromised on their message not because they believed it as a philosophy because they knew it as a historic reality that jesus had died and was raised from the dead physically so that they could have the hope of heaven and that hope was beyond their imaginations and that hope they had is the same hope that you can reserve today by preparing for joy let's watch
There's a uh, great passage in Ephesians that says that God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond what you can think or imagine. And if you want the hope of that imagination and that joy and that expectation in your heart, I just want to give us a chance as we conclude today to respond to God in prayer. And just by saying to God, I believe that, I want that, I'm believing as best I can with what I have, but I want that in my heart and I want that certainty. So let me lead you in prayer and we'll go out in joy. Just say, Father, I want the joy of knowing you are with me. I want the joy of knowing I will see Grandma and Grandpa again. I want the joy that my future is filled with a place with no sickness and no pain. I want the joy that my shame can be covered. I want the joy that I can be forgiven for my past, my present, and my future right now through Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you for the joy that came through your Son. We thank you for the joy that flows in and out of us and through us. May we be people of courage, people of joy, people of patience, people of expectation. And may we swamp our our marriages, our families, our communities, and our companies with the kind of joy that transcends understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you all next week as we start a new series called Parent Map. Thanks again.